Let's pray. Lord, we thank you that your love is rich and pure, measureless and strong, that it shall forevermore endure the saints and angels' song. We pray that as we dive into your word, the love of God would be revealed to us, that you would show us your grace and your truth, that we would come to know you and the power of your resurrection. I ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Mark 14. I should go there too. Mark 14. Uh, so, we've just spent quite a lot of time uh, seeing Jesus have a lot of uh, conflict with uh, Pharisees and priests and Sadducees and scribes. Uh, then we saw Jesus give uh, this huge mouthful of a prophecy about the end times. And now, uh, with the opening verses of chapter 14, we are stepping into the last day or two of Jesus's life. We are stepping into, uh, as it were, the final act in the drama that is the book of Mark. We are stepping into the end. This is the countdown to the death of Christ. And it's kind of interesting because this passage, uh, Mark 14, uh, talks a little bit about the, the opening passage, but it includes a flashback to uh, at least seven days previous, uh, showing Jesus in Bethany with his disciples and with some others. So um, let's read together Mark uh, chapter 14. Please stand in reverence to the word of God. It was now two days before the Passover and the Feast of Unleavened Bread, and the chief priests and the scribes were seeking to arrest him by stealth and kill him. For they said, Not during the feast, lest there be an uproar from the people. And while he was at Bethany in the house of Simon the leper, as he was reclining at a table, the woman came with an alabaster flask of ointment, a pure nard, very costly, and she broke the flask and poured it over his head. And there were some who said to themselves indignantly, Why was this ointment wasted like that? For this ointment could have been sold for more than 300 denarii and given to the poor. And they scolded her. But Jesus said, Leave her alone. Why do you trouble her? She's done a beautiful thing to me. For you always have the poor with you. And whenever you want, you can do good with good for them, but you will not always have me. She has done what she could, and she has anointed my body beforehand for burial. And truly I say to you, wherever the gospel is proclaimed in the whole world, what she has done will be told in memory of her. Then Judas Iscariot, who was one of the twelve, went to the chief priests in order to betray him to them. And when they heard it, they were glad, and they promised to give him money, and he sought an opportunity to betray him. Amen. Please be seated. Uh, in in his commentary about this passage, uh, the author J.C. Ryle said, A cold heart makes slow hands. A cold heart makes slow hands. The idea behind that is that the woman in this passage had such a warm heart towards Christ. And the warm heart that she had towards Christ caused her to do something reckless and foolish in service to him. Then you contrast that with Judas Iscariot, the betrayer of Christ. His heart was icy cold. You see his betrayal has, is not something, you know, like I said, this, this, is, this passage is, takes place at least a week before the rest of 
Mark 14. This takes place before Mark 11, 12, and 13. This is a flashback to when Jesus was in Bethany, um, at least the the Saturday before he entered Jerusalem, you know, in, in Matthew or in Mark chapter 11, when we see the triumphal entry, Jesus enters in Jerusalem on a donkey and people are proclaiming the the that Jesus is the king, the, the descendant of David. This takes place probably probably the Saturday before, maybe earlier, it's not sure, but it definitely didn't happen later on during all of this teaching. It was now two days before the Passover. So this is uh, talking about after Jesus had finished his conflicts with all of the Pharisees and the high priests and all those things. It was two days before the Passover and the Feast of Unleavened Bread. And, and like it said at the end of, well, close to the end of chapter 12, it says in verse uh 34, it said that after that, no one dared to ask him any more questions. So the Pharisees had spent quite a lot of time trying to get Jesus, to trap Jesus in his words and get the people to turn against him so that they could have the people stone him for blasphemy. And then their hands would be clean and, and everybody would be happy and they could get on with the feast, with the, with the Passover, the Feast of Unleavened Bread. And, uh, but after all of their attempts, Jesus totally stopped everything that they said and totally turned everything around on them and embarrassed them and humiliated them in front of the people. And so after that, they, they dared not ask him any more questions. And, and here we see that it was two days before the Passover and the Feast of Unleavened Bread and the chief priests and scribes were seeking how to arrest him by stealth and to kill him. So they figured there was no way they were going to get the people to turn against him. So they figured that they could just maybe after the feast, after, you know, for, for Passover in Jerusalem, the, the the population of Jerusalem like triples or quadruples or something like that. It's crazy. All from all over the place, Israelites from Greece would come down to Jerusalem for the feast of the Passover. Um, this was a huge, huge deal. And so likely a lot of the people who are in Jerusalem and who are watching Jesus, and as it says in uh in, in verse 37 of chapter 12, the great throng heard him gladly. It's likely that a lot of those people were Galileans, where Jesus had spent three years of his ministry, healing people, casting out demons, and teaching and, and doing all of these amazing things. It's likely that a lot of the people who are in Jerusalem for the Passover were people who had watched Jesus do all these things in Galilee. And so the priests and scribes figured that there was no way they were going to get those people who had watched Jesus do amazing things for their brothers and their uncles and their moms, that they were going to be able to get those people to turn against Jesus and to stone him for blasphemy. And so they figured after the feast, we can arrest him by stealth and we can put him to death secretly and just get rid of him kind of under the table. And then we don't have to worry about all of these people getting up in arms and, and standing against us. Once they all go home, It'll just be the population of Jerusalem, and they're pretty much all on our side anyway, so we can probably just deal with it then. Um, not during the feast, lest there be an uproar from the people. So then, we flash back, uh, and now it's, it's time for us to um, contrast this woman with Judas. The warm and the warm heart and quick hands of this woman versus the slow, or the cold heart and the slow hands of Judas. Um, it's, it's intended to display the devotion 
of this woman, the, who, who uh, the Apostle John tells us is Mary Magdalene. Mark leaves that out here, not, not sure why. Likely because um, when this was written, it was probably about 30 years after Jesus had died, maybe only 20 years after Jesus had died. And so it's likely that this family, um, Simon the leper and, and Mary and Martha and Lazarus, that they were either still alive or that their children were still alive or that they were, it's, it's likely that they were still out there uh, preaching the gospel. And, and at that time, there was quite a lot of opposition. There were Roman uh, emperors who were trying to make sure that they couldn't preach anymore. And so it's likely that Mark doesn't want to identify this woman because she was a, a very close follower of Jesus and it could get her into trouble. Um, that's possible. It's hard to know. It, maybe that's not what it is. Uh, Matthew also does not identify her in his gospel. And so it's likely that that's the, mo that's the most likely scenario. But again, there, there's no way for us to know exactly why. By the time the Apostle John wrote his gospel, it was like something like 60 years after Jesus had gone back into heaven, after he had risen from the dead. And so it's likely that at that point, all of these people were either dead or really stinking old. And so probably didn't have to worry too much about protecting the family and making sure that uh, they weren't identified here. Uh, especially since Jesus's words in this passage where he says, uh, truly, I say to you, wherever the gospel is proclaimed in the whole world, what she has done will be told in memory of her. And so to say that, and then to identify her, that that's the kind of person who's going to be remembered and renowned in the Christian faith that the persecutors of Christianity would want to find and silence. So it's, uh, that's the most likely scenario. It's hard to say. Um, Jesus is in the house of a former leper, Simon. You know, he's called Simon the leper, but if he were a leper, he wouldn't be having a dinner party. Uh, the laws for Israel were that lepers had to live outside of the city, outside of the camp. And so this man, Simon the leper, is, cannot be uh, a leper. Otherwise, there's, he doesn't get to live in Bethany. And Jesus is in Bethany at the time. And so there, there's some uh, church tradition which says that Simon the leper may have been the father of Mary and Martha and Lazarus, maybe, but there's no way to prove that. But it, it would kind of make sense why Mary, Martha, and Lazarus, or why Mary was there if this was her father's house. Um, Lazarus, I believe, was raised from the dead in Bethany. And so it, it seems like it's a possibility, um, but, you know... Uh, again, this is mostly speculation. As Jesus is reclining at the table, uh, this is a very common practice, reclining at the table. Everybody would lay on these little couches and the table would be low to the ground. And that's kind of how, you know, nobody sat up in chairs around a table like we do in our day. They all lounged in kind of that Greek style um, that you see in paintings and whatnot. And we talked a little bit about that last week where Alexander the Great, when he invaded the world, he brought Greek culture in, right? He made everybody speak Greek and do Greek things and worship Greek gods. And so it's likely that at these kinds of dinner parties, the, a very Greek thing would be to lay around and lounge uh, as you ate. And this, uh, this uh, posture of reclining made, made it so that the whole dinner went on for hours and hours. It was mostly... Um, 
an extended conversation. It, it wasn't so much centered around the meal itself. It was mostly centered around let's lounge together. You know how you sit in your living room when your friends are over and you lounge and you and you talk to them. Well, they just combined dinner with lounging and did it all, all at the same time. Very efficient people. Very efficient. Um, and so as he's reclining at the table, you think about uh, the the people reclining at the table in that day. They they live in a day where everybody's wearing sandals and everybody is walking on the same roads where the animals are walking. And we've, we've seen in other passages Jesus washing his disciples' feet. And the purpose of that is that as you're walking down the road in the dust and the mud and the animal droppings, that your feet, by the time you get into the dinner party, are terrible. And if you're reclining, your feet are up. And your feet are actually sitting kind of close to the head of the next guy. And so the washing of the feet was something that was a big deal. And, and oftentimes they would put a dollop or two of perfume or ointment onto people's feet to get rid of the smell, to overpower the smell of the the sweat and the animal droppings and all those things. Um, and then they would also, in the days before deodorant, it was a very common practice that when people came into a dinner party that you would offer them a drop or two of oil, a drop or two of ointment, perfume, to cover up the, the smell of body odor. So this was not, for this woman to have this alabaster flask was not an uncommon thing. Likely, again, she was probably in her father's house and she was given the task, the responsibility of giving everybody a drop of ointment. Uh, but she comes forward to Jesus and she kneels down and she takes this ointment of pure nard, which is uh, a... Uh, I, I believe it's a plant from India. I'm not 100% sure. I don't know much about perfumes. Ladies, maybe you can tell me later. Um, but uh, she comes and she takes this uh, this this uh, alabaster flask and she breaks it. Instead of dropping just a few drops, she snaps the neck and she dumps it on his head. Uh, and I mean, imagine how the room smelt after that, right? A, a drop or two of this ointment would be enough to cover up the stink of one person. Imagine a whole bottle poured onto someone's head. How intense the scent would be. Unbelievable. And, and there are some who say to themselves at this point, why was this ointment wasted like that? For this ointment could have been sold for more than 300 denarii and given to the poor. Now 300 denarii, that, that's a year's wages. So when, when we're talking about this, this ointment, this is a $40,000 bottle of perfume. That's a lot of money. That is a, a hugely lavish thing to be doing. She's not just taking a day's wages worth of, of ointment and pouring it on Jesus' head. She's, she's giving up salary for a year. A year. To pour this on Jesus' head. This is a, an impressive display of devotion. This is an amazing display of devotion. This is an unbelievably expensive amount of perfume. And she doesn't just give a drop or two of this $40,000 perfume. She dumps the whole thing on his head. And, and there are people who say to themselves indignantly, now again, the Mark doesn't tell us who this is. Other passages do. We know that this is Judas Iscariot. The betrayer of Jesus says, why was this ointment wasted? 
and others, it seems like they joined in. Some said to themselves indignantly, why was this ointment wasted like that? For the ointment could have been sold for more than 300 denarii and given to the poor. And so it's veiled in this idea of altruism where we're going to, you know, we got to give it to the poor. You know, why would you waste something like that? Think of all of the mouths we could feed. Think of the the shelter we could build. Think of the whatever the the doctor's bills we could pay for the for the poor if we sold this and and we could use it and and they scolded her for it but jesus said leave her alone why do you trouble her she's done a beautiful thing to me for you always have the poor with you and whenever you want you can do good to them but you will not always have me she has done what she could she has anointed my body beforehand for burial She's immediately criticized for her gesture as wasteful. How often does this happen? Where we, where somebody wants to do something, you know, for the church or for somebody in need or, or I don't know, something like that. And they want to give something to the church and it's criticized as wasteful. Or they didn't ask for permission beforehand. Or they didn't do it right the right way. You know, thanks for helping the church, but you didn't do it right. Thanks for your very expensive gift that you've given to the church, but you're not doing it right. Thanks for your devotion to God, but you're not doing it right. This happens so often that people want to devote themselves to ministry. People will want to fly off to Indonesia and will criticize them as being crazy. That what are you going to do for money? What are you going to do? What about your kids? How are they going to be able to, you know, when I was becoming a pastor, one of the things that was said to me a lot was, well, what about your kids? You know, your, your kids are going to be pastor's kids. Don't you think that that's, you know, everybody hates pastor's kids. Don't you, don't you think that you should wait until your kids are grown until you're a little bit more in a, in a better position to go and serve God? Doesn't that make more sense? It's like, yeah, it might make more sense, but that's not why I'm doing this. I'm not doing this for my own comfort. I'm doing this to serve God. Doing it to serve God. I'm not doing it to serve you. I'm not here to serve you. I'm not here to serve the people who are criticizing me. I'm not here to serve anybody. I'm here to serve God. That's the point. And this woman comes forward. Mary Magdalene comes forward and she breaks this flask and she serves God. By pouring ointment over Jesus' head, and she's immediately criticized as wasteful. This is so common. This is so common. It was an act of faith on her part. And, and she's criticized because, you know, she's not doing the right thing with it. So still give us the money, but let us do what we think you should do with it. Right? So not saying keep the money for yourself. Like, still give us the money, but, you know... We're going to use it for things that are really important because you don't know what's really important. I know what's really important. Give it to, give it to Judas and put it in the money bag. And, and, you know, he can skim off the top and give the rest to the poor, maybe. And they scolded her. It drives me crazy, as you can maybe tell. The idea here is that they want to give the money to the poor. 
and and to be honest, that's not a bad thing. Giving money to the poor is good. It's not something that I'm I'm trying to criticize against giving to the poor. And Jesus says, don't disregard the poor, but recognize that she's done a beautiful thing. And you'll always have the poor with you. Whenever you want, you can do good to them, but you will not always have me. And so Jesus is saying, don't disregard the poor, but always put the worship of God first. Do you realize that the greater priority for all of us is not helping others, it's worshiping God? Now, worshiping God can be expressed in helping others. But we are not supposed to neglect the worship of God in order to serve the poor. If it comes down to a choice, we worship God. And so for a person to give money, say, to the church instead of to the poor, that's a good thing. Because we're to prioritize the worship of God over all other things. Again, it's good to help the poor. But the worship of God is paramount. If the idea is that we're going to build a church or give away a bunch of money to the poor, we should build a church. Because the worship of God is the priority. And that's what Jesus is saying here. You'll always have the poor, and you can do good to them whenever you want, and that's good. But you'll not always have me. Serve me, worship me, honor me. She has done what she could. She has anointed my body beforehand for burial. She was also doing this as an act of faith because Jesus had often said to his close friends and his followers that he was going to Jerusalem to die. And now it's the eve of the Passover. He's heading to Jerusalem and he's told them multiple times that he's going to die. And so Mary is not able to stop him from doing what he's doing, but she's doing what she can. And she's anointing his body beforehand for burial. Understanding that this is going to happen and trying to do a kindness to Jesus before he goes. And, in a, and she does it in faith that he is going to rise from the dead. She doesn't, do, she doesn't try to stop him. She allows him to go believing that what he says is true. That he's going to die and that three days later he's going to rise. Our service to God is something that should at times have a certain recklessness and lavishness to it. Uh, worship is to be our priority. Uh, financial stability and helping others is not the ultimate priority for the Christian church. Worshiping and honoring God is our ultimate priority. Financial stability is a good thing. But if that's how you make all of your decisions, then you're worshiping someone other than God. I get very upset when people speak about financial stability like that's an actual measurement for one thing as though it is the ultimate thing my wife and i decided to get married when we were in our early 20s and we were told quite a few times that we should not get married until we are financially stable 
Of course, ask the 18 different people who told us that and find out what financially stable means and you'll get 18 different answers. My wife and I decided to have children right off the bat. We didn't wait at all. And we were criticized for not being financially stable to help our children. As if that was the ultimate thing, that you better be financially stable or else your children are going to have this horrible life. That you better be financially stable. You, you have to be able to buy a house before you can have children so that they'll grow up with a building around them. The same building all the time, I guess, is really important. foundation <laughs> but again this is not the ultimate priority nobody wanted to know why we were doing the things that we were doing our reasons for doing the things that we were doing all that mattered to them was that we was pope and that we weren't going to be able to take care of our kids in the way that they thought that we should be able to take care of their kids because that's how they think that they should take care of their kids and so we have to do it exactly the same way as them not everybody serves God in exactly the same way. Not everybody goes and becomes a pastor. Not everybody gives $40,000 to the worship of God. But our service to God should have a certain amount of recklessness. That our service to God should not always be within, the, within our control. Sometimes it's good for us to release control and give it to God. When we give charitably to the church, if you only ever always give 10%, you're doing it wrong. Because the Bible says be generous. So sometimes you give less than 10%. Sometimes you give exactly 10%. And sometimes you give more than 10%. Because it's not about the 10%. It's about giving to God. And sometimes your giving should have a certain amount of recklessness and lavishness to it. And it leads to blessing. You look at Jesus saying here, truly I say to you, wherever the gospel is proclaimed in the whole world, what she has done will be told in memory of her. That this is seen as a very, very good thing. We see, we saw this a couple weeks ago with the widow's offering where she gives two small copper coins which make a penny. And Jesus doesn't criticize her for being too giving too much or for not say, keeping enough behind to live on but he praises her for her generosity and for her reckless love for God that she's going to give it all to God again I'm not saying you need to sell your house and give the money to the poor I'm not saying that you have to spend $40,000 on the worship of God what I'm saying is Get out of your shell a little bit and serve God because he's worth it. Be like this woman who threw some caution to the wind in order to serve and love Jesus. If you serve and love Jesus, he will take care of you. It might be hard and you might have to struggle afterward, but he will take care of you one way or another. I'm not saying that you plant a seed and you'll get fivefold back. That's heresy. What I'm saying is you give to God and he will take care of you. 
If you give it up to Jesus, he'll take care of you. One thing, and I keep coming back to myself because this is something that I've tried to practice in my life, giving it to God. I don't know if I do a very good job, but so far God has done unbelievably amazing things for me. And I don't believe that it's in proportion to my faith or anything like that. I just believe that when we serve God, he takes care of us. And that giving it all to God is enough for him to give back to us. And that, again, everything is his anyway, including your life. But when you give to God, he takes care of you. I believe that. Then Judas Iscariot, who was one of the twelve, went to the chief priests in order to betray him. And when they heard it, they were glad, and they promised to give him money, and he sought an opportunity to betray him. So you see the, the contrast here between the recklessness of Mary and the cold, calculating money grab of Judas. That Judas was always interested in money. Judas was always doing things to get money. That he, was, he had the facade of serving God. He was one of the 12 disciples, but all the while, his highest concern was money. Is your highest concern money? If it came down to it, would you serve God or money? This is an honest question that we all have to ask ourselves because it's super easy to be a Judas. It's really hard to be a Mary. It's really hard to pour $40,000 onto Jesus's head. It's really easy to sell out and to make a lot of money and be comfortable and financially stable. And we're all prone to do this. It's tempting for me. It's tempting for you. But that is not the be all end all. A cold heart makes slow hands. Judas's heart was cold and he had planned ahead of time. You know, this is at least a week before the death of Christ. And he goes up to the Pharisees and the scribes and he offers or the chief priests in order to betray him to them. This was a while beforehand. This was not a spur of the moment decision. This was a, a calculated attack and they promised to give him money. And from then on, he sought an opportunity to betray him. Contrast that to Mary, who in one day, quick decision, poured the alabaster flask full of nard onto Jesus' head. We lavish worship on God because he lavishes his love and grace on us. So turn, I want to close by talking about Ephesians chapter 1. If you have your Bibles, turn there, Ephesians chapter 1. Starting in verse 7, it says, In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time 
to unite all things to him, things in heaven and things on earth. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us. God's grace towards us is not a little dispense. He doesn't give us 10%. He doesn't give us 50%. He lavishes his grace on us. He lavishes his love and mercy on us. He adopts us to be his children and he gives us every spiritual blessing. He gives us the forgiveness of our trespasses. You sin multiple times every single day. And he lavishes his grace upon you to give you the forgiveness of your trespasses. In him you have redemption. You have been redeemed. You have been brought up out of the grave and made alive in Christ. And through that, he lavishes his grace on you. Lavishes. If God is willing to lavish this much on you by sending his own son, the Lord Jesus Christ, to take the wrath of God on your behalf, to rise again and to adopt you into his family, to make you an heir of eternal life, is there anything that you have that is too much to give? Is there any line that you won't cross. Because if there is, then I think you have the wrong idea of your salvation. You have the wrong idea of God. You have the wrong idea of who you are. Do you realize what Christ has done for you? And the amount that he's given you? Why are you holding back from following him and serving him and honoring him? And giving to him. Everything that you have is his already. But he gives it to you to use it for his purposes. Are you doing that? Let's pray. Father, help us to be like Mary. Help us to understand that you have lavished grace on us, that you have given us so much more than we can possibly understand. You have delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us into the kingdom of light. You have made us heirs and fellow heirs with Christ. You have brought us from the grave and given us newness of life. You've taken out our heart of stone and you've given us a heart of flesh. And you've given us so much extra blessing beyond that. You've given us homes and cars and food and money. Father, help us to use it for your glory and not for our glory. Help us to honor you for all your worth because you have loved us. Your love is unfathomable. Your love is lavish. Father, help us to serve you with no holds barred. Help us to serve you with all that we have and all that we are. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.